Good morning and good afternoon. Welcome to another episode of Before Coffee. It is Friday, the new Friday news dump where we're talking about farmers and black history. So let's go ahead and get into our headlines. Today on Before Coffee, Weather Tracker. Storm Ingen hits Norway with hurricane force winds. Wall Street News. Meta stuns Wall Street with its first ever dividend. And we cover the states that are most reliant on federal aid. The farmers protest of Europe. We're going to talk about what people think about it and what the EU is going to do about it. It's Black History Month. We talk about Robert Brown Elliott. U.S. Congressman. Groundhog Day, the European origins of the bizarre U.S. tradition. Those stories and more, which is not only Groundhog Day, it's National Tater Tot Day, February 2nd, 2024, on Before Coffee. What's happening with my OBS day, but here we are. We're going to be covering our first news story, which is about the weather. That's right, if you're living up there in the north, you're going to be dealing with some serious problems because the hurricane force winds are coming. This is from The Guardian. This week brought the strongest storm so far of 2023 and 24, probably because of climate change, especially in the European season. A storm Ingen slammed into Norway on Wednesday, which was... January 31st. A deep multi-centered area of low pressure intensifies as it moves eastwards towards Scandinavia, displaying signs of possible sting jet activity as it approached the Norwegian coast. A sting jet is a narrow channel of very strong winds, often more than 100 miles per hour, that can form from low pressure systems strengthening rapidly, with these winds descending from upper levels towards the surface. The storm deep, depend, deepened to a lowest central pressure of 940 pressure, atmospheric pressure, PA, on, on the Wednesday, which was the 31st of January, approaching Norway's official low pressure record of 938.5, set in 1907. The storm is the most powerful Norway has seen in decades, with sustained winds equivalent to those from a Category 1 hurricane. And this is a place that does not get hurricanes, so that's why this is impressive. Because they don't get hurricanes, they don't get monsoons, none of that stuff happens in Norway. Gusts of 80 to 100 miles per hour were widespread along the west coast during Wednesday's afternoon and overnight, with Norwegian Meteorological Society announcing on Thursday, which was the 1st of February, the strongest converted gust of 115 miles per hour at Skilna Lighthouse on the island of Himoya, to the north of Trondheim. Some reports from the Faroe Islands suggest that gusts there could have reached up to 155 miles per hour. These numbers are unconfirmed at the time of the writing. Uh, by the way, this is written for the Guardian, so I am not given KPH, I'm only getting MPH because the London, London, or it's London, the UK uses miles per hour, unlike the rest of Europe uses kilometers per hour. <laughs> so I don't really have the uh, kilometers here. Flights and ferries were canceled alongside closures of schools and other transport links with power cuts across the central part of Norway. A hotel in the town of Bodo had several windows blown out on its top floor and a bus carrying 14 passengers was blown off the road in the city of Bergen. Wow, that's scary. Elsewhere, Kashmir Valley, an Indian-administered Kashmir, received its first significant snowfall of the winter. After two months with very little precipitation, the end of the longest dry spell seen in the greater Himalayan region, bringing much-needed snow for ski tourism in the area. Aside from the lack of snow damaging the local economy, the prolonged dry conditions exacerbated the risk of wildfires and could be have implications for water scarcity in the region. December brought 79% less rain than normal in the Jammu and Kashmir area, with no participation records in the first week of January. However, up to 25 to 38 centimeters, or 10 to 15 inches, of snow was recorded across the region on Thursday, which was the 1st of February, blocking transport links and cutting off smaller settlements with a sudden accumulation of snow. The Indian Meteorological Department 
has predicted that the remainder of February will bring above average precipitation. So, scary news from Norway, good news-ish from India, because they were about to be in the longest dry spell ever, and now they have snow! They went from no water to frozen water. So there's your, your meteorological news of Friday, right before the weekend. Stay safe out there. On to your story. Okay, in financial news, we're going to talk about Wall Street and Meta, the, the, the parent company of Facebook and Instagram. Instagram and Threads. Should we get a dividend? This is from Market Watch. Market Watch. Meta platforms. Excuse my nose. I was about to sneeze, but I didn't do that. Meta Platforms Inc. surprised Wall Street on Thursday with its first ever dividend, a move that is likely Silicon Valley's most monumental dividend decision since Apple Inc. reinstated its payout over a decade ago and one that could light a fire under other tech giants. With Meta's one, with Meta's plans to pay 50 cents a share quarterly dividend beginning in March, the company will join Apple and Microsoft among big tech's dividend payers. Chief Executive Mark Zuckerberg's willingness to make a move could lead investors to clamor for similar moves by Alphabet Inc., which is Google, mm-hmm. Am- and Amazon Inc. Yeah. Two tech holdouts that are older than Meta. Meta has divided, sorry, Meta's dividend plans could get shot. Could get the shock. Let's do this again. <laughs> Meta's dividend plans can get the stock noticed even more on Wall Street, according to the committee, choosing components for Dow Jones Industrial Average. While it, it's no longer required for Dow candidates to issue dividends, paying one could get certainly help Meta's re- resume. Currently, within the Dow, only Salesforce.com, Inc., and Boeing do not pay dividends. Of course, with stock, there's two ways to make money on stock. There's buying the stock, and they're selling it when it's high, right? Yep. Another way to make money on stocks is they are very valuable stocks and they have what's per- called preferred stock, which pays a dividend to stockholders, uh, quarterly, semi-annually, yearly, or just whenever they feel like it. And while it's never, it's not necessarily a requirement anymore for the Dow, the stocks they list, the ones they list to pay a dividend, they used to have that requirement, and currently there's only two that don't. But that's kind of just tech news, um, technical make money news, and it's probably going to cause their stock to probably to go up because it becomes, you know, a desirable stock to have when it's paid. You don't have to sell it to make money. Other news on finance, on the finance front, we're going to talk about the states. This is from Money Geek. This is an article by Josiah R. Baker, PhD. The states that are most reliant on federal aid. He's a featured expert. The uh, actual article is written by Deb Gordon. As Americans head to the polls, this is a recent article. It's not old, so it's from uh, this year. Americans head to the polls uh, or the mail-in drop boxes. Voters will be weighing their own state's financial health based on who they elect in state, local, and federal election. Put state's financial health and potential impact on residents of those states into context. Money Geek analyzed the ranked states according to their dependence on federal government. Rankings account for political affiliation, net benefits individuals and organizations in the state receive, state government revenue from federal sources, and GDP per capita. Key findings. Seven of the 10 states most dependent on federal government were Republican voting, with the average red state receiving $1.05 per dollar spent. Also, 29 states sent more to the federal government they received, compared to just nine states in 2021. This survey was done over apparently 2022, which is the last day they could fully collect that on a little late, uh, probably too early to get full data in 2023. One of the states that sent more than they received, 52% were Democratic voting, 48% were Republican. New Mexico had the highest return on federal spending of any state, and Delaware had the lowest. How much does your state depend on federal funding? All right. 
So they got a big old uh, map big truth. here. And yeah, it's got the uh, darker states, the darker blue states have most dependent on federal dollars. But there's also a chart that goes by, they have a dependency score and the highest score is New Mexico. It's totally 100. Of course, New Mexico is famously doesn't have a lot of people. They have a lot of land and they have, you know, Los Alamos. They have Fort, uh, not Fort Bliss. They have, uh, well, they have part of Fort Bliss. They also have uh, a White Sands Missile Range. They have a giant. They have a lot of federal. Uh, satellite antenna array. Yeah, it's all federal. Yeah, it's all federal money. They're taking federal Mexico. money because they're mostly federal property, basically. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a lot of federal land, and it's not a lot of people. So the per capita dependency yeah. score is going to be high. On the contrast, West Virginia is second. They're eighty nine point five. So uh, New Mexico is the only technically blue. Out of, out of the top ten, there's three blue states, seven red states. So your three mm -hmm. blue states would be Vermont very small state, Vermont, New Mexico, and Maine, which is, again, Maine's kind of a purple state. But the red states in the top, in the top 10 taking government money and not giving it back, West Virginia, Mississippi, Alaska, Kentucky, Montana, Arizona, and Alabama. Two of those are the and worst states the, in the country. Arkansas is not on here. That's a shocking okay. part. They don't have enough. Uh, they don't have money. They just don't have money. No, so in comparison with New Mexico, uh, you could also argue West Virginia also has a lot of federal. Uh, no, West Virginia is just poor. West but then, don't they poor. also have like the no radio zones because they have like federal? Uh, that's not federal. That's not federal. Like, oh, okay. It's just a regulation. Okay. <laughs> There's. I don't. I don't think. No, West Virginia is just getting a lot of money because there's a lot of poor people. Same for Mississippi. Alaska is surprising to me because they have a lot of oil money. Why mm -hmm. the federal government propping them up? But I guess there's a lot of money going there for various like things, right? Of course, oil companies don't use their own money a lot of times. They get subsidies. Yeah. Um, the bottom states, New Jersey. New Jersey is zero score, a zero score. And they... They get they back 56 money. cents for every dollar they send. 56 cents. And by contrast, New Mexico, $3.69. West Virginia, $3.09. Our favorite state to talk about, Texas. They're, they're, actually, they're actually on this chart. They're actually not getting their money back, so. Oh, really? I don't think so. Maybe, they're, they're in the lower half. They're under 25, so yeah, they're 35. So it's New Jersey, Washington, Illinois, California, Utah, Colorado, Nebraska, Wisconsin, Massachusetts, and Ohio, Minnesota and Ohio. So Utah, which has not too many federal bases or anything. I don't think there's any military base. They're just like they're just a cult. So they're, 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 state. They're just a big empty <laughs> state. Or a big empty a cult state. Yeah. Call a religion a cult. I love it. No, it's not a religion. Cults, I, I'm just saying people who I've watched a lot of documentaries about this. Everyone who's an ex-Mormon is like, yeah, it was a cult. <laughs> oh, I know. So. All religions are a cult, if you ask me. So. Yeah, you know, I mean, I agree. You know, but it is I'll, interesting I'll, that Utah is basically built on this entire religion. Like, there'd be nobody there. If it wasn't for Mormonism, there'd be nobody in Utah. <laughs> Yeah, the other way, it'll be full of Utes. Um, but that's that's irrelevant to anything we're talking about. I'm talking about the federal money spending, the federal government spending money, and they're not But the, the, the states anyway, you named are the ones who get money back. Democratically in blue states tend to be wealthier and pay more to the federal government than they get. In contrast, yeah. Republican-leaning red states tend to have less wealth and receive more federal government funds than they pay. In the Money Geek ranking, seven of the most dependent states are considered red states. Policy changes may partially explain this relationship. A really conservative state might choose to tax itself at a lower rate, which means by default they can give fewer state-funded services, explains Kathy Fallon, human services practice area director, it's a long title, public consulting group. 
it, that can exacerbate the situation. But a correlation between states' economic health and political affiliation may reflect economic factors beyond those explained by political, political philosophy. If red states pay less in taxes than they receive in benefits, that's because they're generally poor and program rules are progressive, not because they are takers, while blue states are donors in any value-laden sense. I'm just saying their economies are doing better. Yeah. Their economies are doing better because they invest in the people. It's not because, oh, the government doesn't have the tax base. No, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> you create a tax base by creating jobs in your state. Yeah. And high-paying jobs, good-paying jobs, not just jobs that are going to go, boy, I worked at that widget factory for 20 years and I raised my salary up to $9 an hour. Now they moved to, you know, they yeah. too. Then they moved to Mexico it's and now like nobody gets really... any tax money. Woohoo! <laughs> but the people don't look around and go, you were dependent on a $9 an hour job. You know, your economy sucks. You know? Like that's nobody the, in your state yeah, that was cared the... in the first place. Yeah, yeah for sure. People saw your state and say, oh yeah, we can we can hire anybody there and they'll never unionize. And if they do, we'll move out. Yes, that's the state you live in. That's no a great, yeah, what a great no economy. Protection. Yeah, you have no worker protection. Your wage, your wages don't support your tax base. You, you've promised a bunch of services you can't deliver, and therefore everybody's economically depressed. Yeah. Wow, I love yeah, living here, want, said no one. You don't attract. You don't attract people to your state because nobody wants to friggin' live there. Yeah. All right. So there we go. There's our little, it's a, that's my little thing. <laughs> hey, people, <laughs> little take thing. care of your people. Pay your people more. It'll raise the taxes, base, right? Believe it or not, everybody will do well. From the bottom up, that's how this works. Not from, hey, rich guy. There's a spot. There's a crumb. Everybody see that crumb. Go get it. Go get the crumb. And everybody dies on the floor after the crumb. That's, yeah. That's where these states are. That's what currently people Sorry about believe the graphics. works. Back to you. Back to you. All right. Speaking of uh, shit not working, I guess. <laughs> or or uh, it's the farmers protest. Uh, it's gotten bigger. Uh, it's the big news headline in all of my European-centered news stuff, so we're gonna cover this in depth, I guess, from two different articles. There's from NOS, which is the Dutch National News Service. Adema. Farmers' protests in Europe prove that manure is not a Dutch problem. Minister Piet Adama of Agriculture, Nature and Food Equality. The farmers' protests throughout Europe make it clear that the manure problem is not a typically Dutch problem, but a European problem. This is what the outgoing Agriculture Minister Adama says. I am happy that this is now being seen in Brussels, says Adama. In the past, they thought this doesn't happen in other countries. Just solve it. It is now clear that farmers in many more countries are suffering from oppressive measures. By restrictive measures, Adama means, among other things, the rules that determine how much manure can be spread on farmland. This has been restricted because too much manure is bad for water quality and groundwater in rivers. For years, Dutch farmers have had an exceptional position in the European manure policy, they sit the so-called derogation. This recently came to an end after much negotiation. Cattle farmers now have to have their manure removed and processed at a high cost. Adema has said, in Europe, Measures are being devised that are the same for all countries, but we are a completely different country than Spain, which is different from Italy or Germany. In the coming week, Adema wants to discuss with the Dutch agricultural sector which measures would work for them, while also improving water quality. In February, Adema will discuss Dutch proposals with his European colleagues. I hear from them that they are also talking to the agriculture sector in this way. Perhaps the this is the time to get more space. Adema works closely with Prime Minister, Prime Minister Rutte, who is not the Prime Minister anymore, really. Um, he's leaving soon, but Rutte attended the farmers' protest in Brussels yesterday and ended up at a table with various farmer representatives, together with Belgian Prime Minister De Croo and European Commission President von der Leyen. Prime Minister of, the Bel of Belgium, Alexander De Croo, EU President von der Leyen and Prime Minister Mark Rutte meet at a delegation of farmers from different countries. The crew said, We are going to talk to the farmers. Come, sit with us. Rutte said about how that went. 
von der Leyen promised the table to quickly come up with a proposal that would reduce the administrative burden on farmers, which we actually have on this other article from Euronews. Von der Leyen sings ode to farmers and promises actions to appease protest. Commissioner, Commission Chief Ursula von der Leyen met with farmers and representatives at the end of the EU summit, promising new upcoming initiatives in a bid to douse lanes after a day of protests in Brussels. Von der Leyen was accompanied by Crew and Ruta, which we just covered, on the February 1st, on Thursday. Speaking to reporters, the crew pointed out that agriculture today faces a lasagna of issues, ranging from the burden of the Green Deal, implementation, and overregulation. Farmers want to be a partner of the climate transition. I have not seen any farmer that does not love nature. They live from nature. Yeah, they. I think there is this argument from some people, I'm sure, which I'm just pulling this out of the air, so I don't know how scientific it is, but there is an argument from that might exist that farmers are stupid and they don't they're not educated and that's why they're farmers um because they can't do anything better but take care of you know cows or whatever there is this argument out there some people held hold right people who do menial labor are not smart now the reason the thing is of course that the argument here that they're providing is that farmers know how nature works they understand that if they poison the groundwater they will die <laughs> and so with their plants and so with the animals so no they're not right. out here screaming let us put manure on our fields because we want to kill the planet you know there's no argument for that okay that's a silly argument i don't know who thinks that's happening but you want to say something as a, a farmer <laughs> well i was a dairy farmer but i can grow stuff i know how it works yeah I'm actually got, I got a little bit of a green zone. I grew my own weed for a while. But, I mean, you grew up in a place but where there are a lot that, of farmers. You argue farmers are idiots yeah. and don't know what's going on. Right. You know? Mm hmm yeah, I, I, I've, I've studied biology enough to know how plants <laughs> need certain nutrients. So yeah. Yeah. A lot of farmers do get those degrees. They go and get degrees in how to uh, farm. Mm-hmm. There's entire universities, agricultural universities. Yeah. No, There's a great anime about being called, going to farmer school, it, even. They're called Aggies. Yeah. They serve for agriculture. So, yeah, this idea Mexico that farmers. Aggies also. Yeah. This idea that farmers don't know what's going on and they're just idiots. Please. That's just, that's yeah. just people being lazy, intellectually yeah. lazy. It's way harder Anytime to think about complex somebody, problems if you just simplify everything to they're just idiots okay <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, you look at people who live in utah and you go yeah your your wagon train broke down we get it right <laughs> didn't go any farther you, 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 you thought salt lake was an actual lake yeah, okay. <laughs> at the meeting farmers yeah. representatives stressed the importance of putting agriculture at the center of the eu's agri-food policies Euronews according according to a close source that talked to Euronews. Although they welcome initiatives such as Strategic Dialogue, recently launched by von der Leyen in principle, according to the source, they said such actions should offer concrete answers to farmers. I am very sensitive to the message that farmers are concerned by administrative burdens, von der Leyen told at press conference after the summit. She later told farmers that the EU executive will present a simplification package designed to address this during the next gathering of EU agricultural ministers on the 26th of February. Farmers play an essential role in Europe's economy and society, and their work contributes greatly to our food security and, indeed, to our way of life," said von der Leyen after the EU Council. She praised their resilience, citing agricultural productivity improving 13% last year, and the contribution to the bloc's external trade as agri-food exports increased by 5% over the same period. But many challenges remain, for example, the tensions on price that lead to uncertainty and, of course, the need to remain competitive while working high standards and environmental protections, she said. Farmers can count on European support, she said, recalling the EU allocates almost one-third of its European budget just to agriculture. She added that the EU must defend the legitimate interest of European farmers in trade negotiations, in particular ensuring a level of playing field in terms of import standards. EU leaders also agreed today to reassign money for the financial envelopes of the bloc's long-term budget. And of course, we talked about yesterday that the Ukraine, uh, they approved a 550 billion euro plan for Ukraine. 
The Common Agriculture Policy, CAP, the EU's Farming Subsidies Program, will be touched by this redeployment together with the cohesion funds to tune to the tune of $1.1 billion. However, the cut in the CAP budget decided by the EU leaders is occasionally more technical and will not translate to cuts to payments of farmers, the EU, EU source told Euronews. The money will come from technical assistance for promotion funds after the next three years. So don't think taking money to Ukraine means taking money from farmers. It's such a limited amount, like $1.1 It's probably nothing compared to the actual if it's one third of the European budget, they probably get a lot. Actually, I should, I wonder if I can look that up real quick. EU farmer or agri, what is their actual budget that they give to farming subsidies and stuff? Subsidies are really important for anybody out there who doesn't know. It basically, basically convinces people, hey, I should go do that because the government will support me. Uh, <laughs> uh, and yeah, people well, won't farm if you don't subsidize them. Kind of already got to be set up in advance. Right? Yeah. Okay, so this is this is information from 2019, but supposedly in 2019, 38.2 billion was spent on direct payments to farmers, so that's direct subsidy. 13.8 on developing rural farms, and then 2. billion to support the actual market. So that's about. 4053. So, do they give about the same amount of money to Ukraine as they're giving to farmers? And they've taken 1.1 away from that, which, as they said, only really covers technical things in their budget, not actual support or development or any of the market support. None of that is being taken away from farmers. So, no one has to worry. But we'll see what happens on the 26th of February when they actually have the actual agri-EU meeting and decide what they're going to do to help um, kind of lessen the anger of all these farmers who are protesting in Brussels and France and all over the EU. Your story. As we continue to pretend that free market capitalism is a thing that actually exists. <laughs> or works, which it doesn't. <laughs> does not exist, has never existed, ever. No. The government's always getting involved, telling them what to do. And they're always controlling the market. Breaks, giving them subsidies, yep. yep. Giving them free land, giving them free leases for land. Yes. I, I honestly, speaking rights, about the no. free market, I love seeing yeah. random comments on the on social media where they're like, well, it's just free market. That's why you didn't succeed. And I was yeah. like, no, I didn't succeed because I'm competing against a 50 billion yeah. mar like company who can just, you know, buy my company and then delete it. You know, that's that's why I didn't succeed. Right. Well, <laughs> they're the, the, the people that I the, the thing that popped into my head just now is the ranchers out west who get grazing rights on federal land, right? They're, yeah. They, they pay like three cents an acre. You know, it's totally subsidized free food for your cattle. But they, you know, they, oh, we need the grassland stomped down because it killed all the bison. So let your, let your cattle out there. And, and then when the farmers, uh, whatever, aren't allowed to for whatever reason, they lose their frickin' mind, the ranchers. Like, what are you doing? You're taking away our free stuff. <laughs> this, you're, this is capitalism. It ain't capitalism. You're getting stuff for free for the government, man. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, back, back to the United States and news briefs. We had a plane crash yesterday in Florida. Oh, God. It's a short article in New York Times. Several dies, a small plane crashes in the mobile home park in Florida. The pilot reported engine failure before the single-engine plane, plane crashed into a home setting the area on fire. A single-engine plane crashed at a waterfront mobile home park in Clearwater, Florida on Thursday. The reporter's name here is Orlando Mayorquin and John Yoon. It crashed into a mobile home park in Clearwater, Florida on Thursday evening after the pilot reported an engine failure, killing several people damaging four homes and setting the area on fire. The plane slammed directly into one home, causing several fatalities, both from the aircraft and within the mobile home. Scott Elther, Elwurz, the fire chief at Clearwater, said in this conference, the crash left part of the mobile home park Bayside Waters engulfed in flames. Three other homes were damaged and no, other, no one inside those homes was injured. 
The aircraft, which crashed around 7 p.m., was a Beechcraft Bonanza V-35, and the number of people on board was unknown as early as Friday. On early Friday, the FAA said in a statement. Videos posted online showed an orange blaze of walk, wall thick smoke building over homes. The fire department received an initial call at 7.08 p.m. and crews quickly extinguished the blaze after arriving at the park around 7.15 p.m. About the same time that his department was called, the chief said the St. Pete Clearwater National Airport, roughly three miles away, had dispatched its own fire response vehicles to an aircraft having an emergency. The pilot had reported mayday over the radio at the, to the airport he added. The aircraft went off radar about three miles north of the runway, which is in the location here. Which radar famously, if you fly low enough, radar will be Yeah. So things can drop off the radar. That means they probably crashed. Too much. Uh, All right. So that's your news brief and a tragedy in Florida. People just sitting home eating dinner and a plane rams into their motor home. So you never know when it's going to end, boys and girls. Yeah, well, I guess it keep your eyes like to that. the sky. Damn. Yeah. Do you were trying to please? I guess they had engine issues, so maybe you couldn't hear the plane coming because their engine was off. So. I was probably going, ah, 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 like that. And that sounds like a plane in trouble. Some people, anyway, some people, that a, sounds like a, a, just a lawnmower, so. You know? That's one of those things I always think is going to happen in my house because they got the Navy flies aircraft over it all the time. I was hoping yeah. to have it while I'm not home. And they could buy me, you know, a nice $3 million home. Sell what the government say. You owe me a house. Yeah. Thank you. And two cats and a dog. Hopefully the cats and dog get out. Well, yeah, lucky, lucky, luckily mom is always working, so she probably wouldn't be there if it happens. <laughs> She isn't always working. She's working during the day. Oh, okay. In the middle of the night. But yeah, they fly at any hour. They don't have any. They're the Navy. They don't care. They don't care about you and me. They got their Navy stuff to do. Anyway, <laughs> Black History Month, and we're going to talk about Robert Brown Elliott. This guy, let's see. You're bring, one year, one year, we're bringing back the photo, man. Well, no, we didn't finish it. This guy in a far. Yep. Here, I got my screen reflecting back up. This gentleman I see it. right here. Yep. Robert Brown Elliott, the guy in the very far there. That's a portrait of all seven members, first seven members of the what they call the Reconstruction Congress. Robert Brown Elliott. This is from the Office of the History of the House.gov. This is the actual House of Representatives site. This is Robert Brown Elliott, 18. 42 to 1884, representative of South Carolina. So we're gonna read his little story, his bio from the house. A renowned lawyer, activist, and public speaker, Robert Brown Elliott was elected to the U.S. House of Representatives for South Carolina in 1870. During his three years in Capitol Hill, Elliott pressed Congress to protect the polit political gains black Americans had won after the Civil War and to stem rising rates of violence back home that threatened to undermine the democratic reforms of the Reconstruction, Reconstruction era. Described as a, by a colleague as a man of character, ability, and marvelous energy, Elliott had a leading role during debate on the bill that would become the Civil Rights Act of 1875. He ultimately resigned from the House midway through the 43rd Congress to return to South Carolina and serve in the state legislature in Columbia. Columbia, South Carolina, not Columbia, the country. Mm -hmm. The details of Elliot's early life have been have been clouded by contradictory sources, rumors, conflicting statements, conflict states by people who know him and different interpretations by historians. According to the Congressional Directory for the 42nd Congress, Robert Brown Elliott was born August 11th, 1842 in Boston, Massachusetts. While some sources claim Elliott was born in Liverpool, England, Contemporary sources, the U.S. Census, and the directory from his time in office cite Boston as his birthplace. In 1880, Census, Elliot declared he was born in Massachusetts. He also listed Massachusetts as the birthplace of his mother and Jamaica as the birthplace of his father. When his congressional career recommenced, several references were made to his origins in the North. The New York Times called him a Massachusetts man, and in 1871, Charleston Daily News article referred to him as a carpetbagger, a derogatory moniker applied to people from the North who moved to the South after the Civil War. 
Another point of contention in Elliot's personal biography was his education. In the Congressional Directory, Elliot asserted that he had been educated in England at High, High Hallborn Academy and Eton College, but no sources can be located to verify he attended those institutions. He also claimed he had studied law with a famous London barrister, which again cannot be verified. Some contemporary sources referenced his service in the British Navy and others cited his time in the U.S. Navy, though no records exist to confirm either, of course. Mile 18. That's one thing about that, you can create your own biography back in those days, and quite easy. By late 1867, Elliot was living in Charleston, South Carolina, where he was associate editor for the South Carolina Leader, a black newspaper owned by future South Carolina representative Richard Harvey Kane. Elliot married Georgia-born Grace Lee sometimes before 1870. They had no children. Elliot quickly dove into Reconstruction area Republican politics in his new South Carolina home, emerging as a leading figure in the January 1868 State Constitutional Convention. One of 78 black delegates at the convention, he advocated for compulsory public education and helped defeat the imposition of a poll tax and literary test for voters. At the State Republican Convention that year, he was nominated for lieutenant governor, but dropped out of the race after finishing third on the first ballot. In 1868, while serving as the only black member of the Barnwell County Board of Commissioners, Elliott was elected to the State House of Representatives where he remained until 1870. He was almost elected speaker, placing second on the ballot. Wow. But, when, but went on to chair both the committee and the railroads in the, sub, in the Committee of Privileges and Elections. This is the South Carolina speaker, not the yeah. U.S. speaker. It's still impressive. Elliot was admitted to South Carolina. Yeah, I know. Well, they, they barred a lot of... Uh, the 14th Amendment was passed, and it barred all... Uh, all Confederate officers holding any offices mm -hmm. in any government. So all the Confederacy was just like, sorry, you can't hold office. He was almost elected speaker, placing second in the balloting. And back in those days, it was self, it was self, uh, financed. What is it? The 14th Amendment is self-enforcing, right? Oh, it's like, okay. you got to be 35 to be president. Same thing. You can't go, well, I'm president. You're not president. You're not 35 yet. No. <laughs> So it's self-enforcing. And in those days, they just said, yeah, of course you can't be on the ballot. You were a Confederate person. Yeah. You actually held office in the Confederacy. Get the hell out of here. He was almost elected speaker, placing second in the ballot. He went on to chair both the committee and railroads in the Committee on Privileges and Elections. Elliot was admitted to South Carolina Bar. So he's admitted to the South Carolina Bar, which is a legal organization, September 1868. In 1869, Republican Governor Robert K. Scott appointed Elliott the Assistant Adjutant General of South Carolina Militia. He also served the South Carolina Republican Executive Committee from 1872 to 1879. He knew the political condition of every nook and corner throughout the state, Elliott's law partner, Daniel Augustus Traker, called. In October 1870, Republicans in the West Central South Carolina Congressional District nominated Robert Elliott over incumbent Solomon Lafayette Hodge to run for a seat in U.S. House of Representatives. The district included the capital, Columbia, and had a slight black majority. Representative Preston Smith Brooks, notorious for his caning assault on Charles Sumner in Massachusetts in 1856, once held the seat. So he took the seat from that guy. That's going to be take it from him, but he took his... Uh, his place. Elliot faced John E. Bacon, a lawyer from a prominent Edgefield County family who campaigned under the banner of the Union Reform Party, a short-lived party mainly consisted of Democrats running on an anti-corruption platform against the Republican-controlled government of South Carolina. Although the New York Times predicted Bacon's victory based on the number of votes the Democratic candidate received in the 1868 election, Elliot soundly defeated him with 60% of the vote. Elliot was sworn into the 42nd Congress on March 4th, 1871, and signed to the Committee on Education and Labor, which he served during both of his terms in the House. Capitol Hill, Elliot gave his maiden speech just 10 days after his swearing in, in an area where new members of Congress participated in debates sparingly. Elliot did not hesitate to take the floor. 
On March 14th, he questioned the merits of proposed measure to reestablish the political rights of nearly all former Confederates who, after the Union's victory, had lost the right to vote and hold office. He told his colleagues that to relieve those men of those, their disabilities at this time would be regarded by the loyal men of the South as evidence of weakness of this giant government and of intention on the part of Congress to foster the men who are today are out, outraging the good and loyal people of the South. Only two weeks later, April 1, Elliott spoke in favor of a bill designed to grant extraordinary powers to the federal government to respond to increasing incidents of violence across the South. In particular, the bill sought to curb the terrorist activities of the Ku Klux Klan. Democrats have made the case that the bill crossed the constitutional lies separating the powers of the federal government and the state government. Elliott addressed the argument of the Democratic representative, future Speaker of the House, Michael C. Kerr of Indiana, who claimed that the federal government should intervene in all affairs of the state only at the request of the state in question. Elliott, however, argued that Article 4, Section 4 of the Constitution gave the federal government the power to guarantee that to every state in this union a Republican Florida government and to protect states from invasion and domestic violence. The Constitution, he said, vests in the federal government the right to act whenever any state was confronted with internal or external threats. Those engaged in the violent attacks on African-Americans in the South, Elliott said, were to defeat the ballot with the bullet and other coercive means, and were engaged in acts of organized lawlessness. There's goes on for quite a while, so we're gonna get to the, how is that life ended? Afterwards, leaving Congress, Elliott founded a law practice to partners but closed in 1879. Later that year, he accepted an appointment as a special customs inspector at U.S. Department of Treasury in Car Charleston. On a trip to Florida, he contracted malaria, which severely undermined his health for the remainder of his life. Elliott remained oh. active in politics. However, working in Treasury, uh, Treasury Secretary John Sherman's campaign for president in 1880, seconding his nomination and mobilizing support from black delegates at the Republican National Convention. January 1881, Elliott was part of black delegation that met with then president-elect James A. Garfield to protest, protest the lack of civil and political rights in the South. In May of that year, the Treasury Department transferred him to New Orleans. Elliott was dismissed as Treasury Inspector in 1882, a decision attributed to in the press to his affiliation with the Republican faction opposed to Senator William Pitt Kellogg. He started another law practice in New Orleans. In New Orleans, Robert Elliott died on August 4th, 1884, in New Orleans at the age of 42. Did a lot by the age of 42. Contemporary press accounts cited malarial fever as his cause. Newspapers from across the nation printed notices of his death. Large and small publications from states, including Illinois, New York, Ohio, and Vermont. Upon learning of Elliott's death, Franklin Douglas, I'm sorry, Frederick Douglas, not his brother, Franklin. <laughs> Frederick Douglass was compelled to write a letter to the editor of the New York Globe mourning the loss of former representative. In the midst of his years, Douglas recalled that Elliot was, was to me a most grateful surprise and in fact, a marvel. Elliot's words and actions, Douglas said, contradicted every prejudicial remark directed at black Americans. For under his dark brow, their praise and intellect worthy of a place the highest legislative hall of the nation. Douglas added that he had hoped Elliott would someday return to seeing Congress, but alas, he is gone. We can only hope that the same power that gave us one Elliott, give us another one your future. There you go. American history. Amazing life, but also tragic end. Dying of malaria fever, man. A, a biography shrouded in a George Santos-like mystery. Wonder <laughs> if he claimed to be a volleyball player too. <laughs> All right, let's go ahead and cover. Those days we didn't have the internet to look his stuff oh, up. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> those days he could claim anything. He was born in you know, I was born in England. Sure. All right, for our culture Slaves segment, we're going to cover very shortly the history of Groundhog Day and how it actually has European origins this is from Euronews Culture. Every year, a furry rodent crawls from a tree to predict the weather. But what European beliefs inspire the event which has been immortalized on screen and stage? 
Groundhog Day, the U.S. tradition where the seasons are predicted by a groundhog, was made world famous by Bill Murray, the Bill Murray film of the same name. But did you know that the tradition's origins lie in Europe? Every year, spectators descend into their thousands, in their thousands on the town of Punxsutawney in Pennsylvania, U.S., to view the legendary Punxsutawney Bill. Makes predictions of the year's Oxitani. weather. Huh? Oxitani. I wonder if that. I don't. What, I don't know what language that is, but it's not a language I know. You gotta. You, you gotta watch. You gotta watch the movie. Oh, I've watched the movie very recently. Don't worry. That's where it takes place. Oxitani. I didn't know how it was spelled because, yeah, <laughs> it's not spelled how I would spell it. Folklore has it that it's the celebrity rodent sees his shadow at daybreak and runs away. He is predicting that there will be six more weeks of winter. If there's no shadow, there will be an early spring. According to records, Phil has predicted winter more than a hundred times. In the U.S., the annual event, which sparked the eponymous film and a Tony Award-nominated musical made by Tim Minchin. I did not know Tim Minchin made a... Tony Award-nominated musical about the Groundhog's Day. What the hell? Dates back to 1887. However, it's believed that the tradition itself was brought over by Central European migrants. Historians say that Groundhog's Day has its origin in Candlemas, the Christian festival when candles are taken to church for a seasonal blessing. In Germany, the idea of clairvoyant rodents crept in, according to early retellings. A diary entry from 1841 predating the Puxotwani tradition by a storekeeper in Morgantown is one of the earliest records of groundhog weather prediction. Kept safe by the Historical Society of Berks County in Reading, Pennsylvania, the handwritten note reads, Last Tuesday, the 2nd, was Candlemas Day, the day on which, according to the Germans, the groundhog peeps out his winter quarters and he, he sees his shadow he pops back in for another six weeks nap. But if the day be cloudy, he remains out, as the weather is to be moderate. Others say that the Dutch, at a one time one of the largest settler groups in Pennsylvania, brought over the custom of weather in intuitive animals and used hedgehogs and badgers to predict seasons. The superstition was soon reoriented to groundhogs due to their large population in the Midwestern state. Happy Groundhogs Day! So, Dutch people using hedgehogs, huh? Is that what we're... Dutch... Dutch hedgehog... Hedgehogs weather. I don't... I'm no, not sure if this is a real thing. The update today, we have an update. We do? You want your latest news on the... Yeah, Buxtani Phil rises without a shadow, forecasting early spring. I mean, I'll be honest though, at this point I can predict it because... Climate change. <laughs> like, I can, I'm telling you, I'm already wearing... Again. I'm not saying it's warm here, okay? Yeah, We're, I right. think, 10 points north of Maryland or whatever, or, and Pennsylvania as well. Where I live is basically yeah. the same latitude as... Canada, okay? But I'm already wearing shorts outside because it's not cold anymore. Yeah, we could, so I can tell you that we for a week, I can tell you that spring's coming early because it's not cold outside. We could have done that as breaking news. Breaking, breaking news. news. Groundhog forecast. Yeah. You're groundhog in yourself. So you know what's going on. <laughs> Groundhogs are just more in tune with the weather than us, and that's what yeah. we appreciate about it. That's but well, that's my short article on Groundhog's Day, so onto this day in history. Oh, okay. Well, as I just mentioned, Pucks Donnie Phil saw a shadow. Yep. I'm sorry, didn't see a shadow. Sorry. So it's springtime. That happened. The sun came up like an hour ago, so. Yeah. I mean, on this day in history, in 1653, New Amsterdam or New York City was incorporated as a city. In 1848, the United States and Mexico signed the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. Ooh. Did that do? That made the place where you used to live, which is called Santa Teresa, New Mexico, part of the United States because wow. the event was disputed. Yep. Cool. Every place south of, uh, from Las Cruces south and a lot of that big chunk of New Mexico was part of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. Proof again that I'm Mexican. <laughs> What? <laughs> Proof that I'm actually Mexican or something. 
I didn't jump the yeah, border. Born, the border jumped me. You were born in Texas slash Mexico slash New Mexico. Yeah, just the nether regions of a woman of the world. You're, you're born in the DMZ. Yeah, I was born in There's the DMZ. There's actually a place in El Paso. Sorry, go ahead. What? I was born in the DMZ. Yeah. Oh, okay. Because <laughs> I couldn't hear what you were saying. Oh. Yeah, there's actually a place in uh, El Paso that is belongs to both countries or neither countries called yeah. Chamazal because the uh, Rio Grande changed course, <laughs> yep. which rivers do. Yeah. In 1887, the first Groundhog Day was held in Puxatawney, Pennsylvania, which we discovered that. Yep. And famously, groundhogs are smarter than we are. 1905, <laughs> American writer Ian Rand, who is commercially successful novels promoted individualism and laissez-faire capitalism became influential among conservatives and libertarians was born in st petersburg thanks a Russia, lot not, whoops not dropped my, my mouse huh? thanks a I'm lot for laissez-faire capitalism that really helped nobody <laughs> she wrote she wrote the fountainhead she wrote uh Atlas Shrugged, and she wrote, uh, what else? A, yeah, a bunch of movie. books that people treat like their Bible, realistically. I did like the Fountainhead. Atlas Shrugged to me is just, whoa, just ponderous, long, long, nothing, ha nothing happens. It's eight million pages long. <laughs> Makes a great doorstop. <laughs> I mean, you could take out a burglar with it. Take out a burglar with it, damn thing, so big. Anyway. On this day, 1912, Frederick Rodman Law performed what was considered the first motion picture stunt, parachuting from the Statue of Liberty in New York Harbor. Don't say if he lived or not. Uh, 1927, American jazz saxophonist Stan Getz was born in Philadelphia. Happy birthday, Stan. In 1943, the Battle of Stalingrad in World War II ended with the surrender of German troops to the Soviets. We covered that the other day. They said it ended the other day. When did it really end? Come on, guys, get this, get your facts together. Kind of curious about uh, this guy if he lived on jumping off the Statue of Liberty. I know the guy jumping off the Eiffel Tower just died. You know, guy was trying to fly. ever see that one? Guy was trying to fly, flap his wings and shit. They got a film with that idiot. He was an inventor. He should have let somebody else test his mansion though, because. He couldn't even go back to the drawing board because he was dead. Eight, 1971, Idi Amin declared himself president of Uganda for the next eight years, headed a regime that was noted for his brutality. 1979, Sid Vicious of the Sex Pistols, early proponents of proponents of British punk rock, died of a drug overdose in New York City. Sid Vicious, who was going to be probably going to prison for killing his girlfriend anyway, uh, he was uh, proponents of British punk rock. I make it sound like there was a debate, you know. Johnny Rotten was on stage with everybody from Oxford, you know. Well, I think I think punk rock is a fine thing. Yeah. <laughs> 1980, the FBI's undercover criminal investigation known as Abscam was revealed to the public. It resulted in the conviction of various elected officials on an assortment of bribery and corruption charges. Wow. FBI, on a sting operation of bribing congressmen. It just seems like they're creating crimes, right? You know congressmen are greedy. Let's just go out and prove it, right? 2014, American actor Philip Seymour Hoffman died of a drug overdose in New York City. So that was a big tragedy. Really great actor. This day in history also, the ban on the African National Congress was lifted. On this day in 1990, South African President F.W. de Klerk lifted the 30-year ban on African National Congress, resulting in the release of, from prison of Nelson Mandela and marking the beginning of the end of apartheid. Yay! Feature biography, James Joyce, author of, of course, Ulysses, born February 2nd. 1882 in Dublin, Ireland. Died January 13th, 1941 at the age of 58 in Zurich, Switzerland. Man, these people just not live long in those days, man. 58? Crap. When I was 58, I didn't think my life was over. This guy, his life was over. 
Other, other birthdays, George Hallis, American sportsman, one of the founders of the NFL. Alice was born in 1895. We already covered Stan Getz and Ian Rand. 1952 is the birthday of Park Gwyn Hai, president of South Korea. Oh. And it's also the birthday of Shakira. Right. Shakira, Shakira. Born in 1977, Colombian musician Shakira. Uh, maybe she's got surgery. Maybe it's all Photoshop, but she does not look that old. Hundred uh, percent right. uh, surgery, okay. When yeah. you're, you think so? Well, yes. it is South America. Nobody it ages America. that well. And what Nobody ages it? that well. Actually, famously, <laughs> I would argue, Latinas and Hispanics definitely don't age well because they smoke a lot. So. Oh, she doesn't smoke. She smoked sure she hot, doesn't. But, but, yeah. The pop star didn't get worked on? Sure she didn't. Okay. <laughs> Don't you know, Shakira famously pissed off a lot of white people when she danced them all close on at the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. What are they doing with women at the Super Bowl? Like, what are you, what's this halftime show? Anybody that's watching likes football doesn't watch the halftime show. Yeah. I don't know why you, that's, you go to the store and refresh your stuff because it's going to be like an hour. <laughs> you go bake okay. a turkey or something. Get mad about that. Whether Shakira and Jennifer Lopez and everybody lost their minds for some reason. I don't know. People are morons. Old women existing in public is illegal. Don't you know that? What? Old women existing in public is illegal. So, yeah. Yeah. That's true. (laughs) Meanwhile, we get to look at every ugly football player's ugly face in the sideline. Let's look at that. (laughs) Put your helmet on. You're ugly. (laughs) <laughs> what day is it? It's National Groundhog Day. It's also National Heavenly Hash Day. I'm gonna smoke me some Heavenly Hash later. Wait, Hell yeah! That appears to be some kind of de- that appears to be some kind of dessert. Okay, <laughs> never mind. Heavenly Hash. You know what Heavenly Hash is? It looks like marshmallows and chocolate. It looks awful. Okay. Yeah. Let's see what it is. I'm just looking. It's just chocolate and marshmallows. Just have a s'more. Yeah. And National Wear a Red Hat Day. <laughs> I'm glad that's a holiday. I am not wearing a red hat. I don't have one. I'm glad oh, that's a holiday. I this one. <laughs> what does it mean? That's yeah, a mega holiday today. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Damn, National you can't wear, wear a red hat. I have no idea. You can't wear First red hats anymore because of Trump. Another thing Trump ruined. <laughs> no yeah, red hats it, allowed. He didn't, ruin, he didn't ruin Groundhog Day. He just ruined first Friday in February. Yeah. This happens to be Groundhog Day this year. It's Bubblegum Day. Not National Bubblegum Day. It's Bubblegum Day. Just don't chew it in class. The pe- teacher will make you blow a bubble and stick it to your nose. Yeah. In front of the class. Because you still. It's National Tater Tot Day. Woo, now that's something. Oh, so, yeah. Yeah. Go watch go watch Napoleon Dynamite. That's what I'm going to do. I, I will and put them in your pocket. My, one of my all-time favorite movies, just because everybody that watches it just has a dumb look on their face the whole time. Napoleon Dynamite's what a good vibe film. It just has that vibe, you know? It's great, man. Every scene is great. I'm sorry. It's one of those <laughs> scenes where every scene is great. You don't know why it's great, you just know it. <laughs> you know, the guy shooting his cow in front of the school bus, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Does that have to be in a movie, you know? It's all about the vibes, okay. man. It's all about Idaho. That's what it is. It's just, it's just ragging on Idaho. Anyway, those are our national days for today, and it's National Tater Tot Day. I'm going to get me some damn tater tots, and you know I'm getting tater tots today. I, I wish I could stuff. buy tater tots, but they don't sell them in they the gotta Netherlands. I've <laughs> never seen them. Not even on frozen foods? <laughs> Not really, no. Don't bake them, man. Deep fry them. Deep fry them, but de- deep fry them properly. We love, it's not like we don't love potatoes bake. here, but I've just never seen them. Yeah. Hey man, once they started chopping up potatoes, they found new. Well, it's basically just hash browns. Look yeah. Hash browns at McDonald's. I'm, I've never Same had thing. a hash brown hash here brown. either, but I'm sure they exist. Yeah, you could get your get your McDonald's hash browns. Don't eat them, right? Deep fry them, crispy, and then eat them. Get them a little crispier because <laughs> they're still a little raw on the inside. Yeah. Anyway, those are your days for today on February second, twenty twenty four, on Before Coffee. All right, and this has been Allison here from the Netherlands, which doesn't have tater tots. I've never seen them. I'm sure I can go to a bigger store. My local store doesn't have them, but I'm sure a bigger store probably has them in little bags that yeah. I can put in my air fryer. And uh, 
look forward to uh, early spring as we head over into the In honor weekend. of uh, Lane Staley. Wait a minute, before you go, in honor of Lane Staley, who's on my shirt, yeah. I just wrote a song about tater tots. You want to hear it? Here it goes. Hear it? At least the first line. I'm the man with the tots. Back <laughs> to you. Okay. This has been Allison. Have a good weekend. We'll see you on Monday for Mucking Fun Day. And uh, have a good one. Here's your mic drop moment. sure to hit the like, subscribe, and notify buttons, and follow our other channels, Toxic Alley, History of Gravy, and Scratchy Old Records.